my wall, I've since moved, but my wall looks like, like if someone walked in, they'd be like, what is she planning here? This is not, there's something wrong here. And it was very like, you know, not red string, but definitely like arrows and all of that nonsense. And there was like uh, printouts of various, you know, UI that I really liked or things that I found product features from other uh, businesses or products that I thought were really great. And they were just, you know, like posts all over it, annotations everywhere. And it was just like, okay, we're doing it. We're going to do it. And that was when I left and started my journey as a founder, but a founder with a product heart, I would say. Hey, everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! Hi, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am thrilled to have with me today, Nina Mohanty. Nina is the founder and CEO of Bloom Money, and Bloom Money is an app that empowers migrant communities to build generational wealth. Before leaving to found Bloom Money, Nina worked with the team at Klarna, reimagining a better way to pay. And prior to Klarna, Nina was working at the London-based open banking startup FUD. She's been a steadfast believer in delivering technology that can better our customers' financial life and financial literacy since her days at Starling Bank and MasterCard. She's a recipient of the Tech Women 100 Award and recently served as a judge for Women in Finance UK Awards and the Great British Businesswoman Awards. She's a three-time recipient of the Innovate Finance Women in Tech Power List as a rising star and this year as a standout senior leader. In her free time, she volunteers her time with multiple charitable organizations and advises talents beyond borders on their strategies for accessing financial services for their refugee candidates. With that, I could not be more pleased to have Nina joining us. Nina, where are you Zooming in from? I am Zooming in from Southeast London today, although I've been on a whirlwind trip leading up to this week, so I'm just happy to be home. That's right. I think I saw you bopping around a few different countries. Where have you been in the last week? So in the last week, I was in Estonia for the brilliant Latitude 59 conference and then um, had to hop and skip over to India um, to go see my family. So very glad to be back. Um, Definitely forgot what it was like to travel and being on a plane again. Um, Thank goodness for neck pillows, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's right. And hopefully some some soothing music or podcast to listen to while you hopefully got some shut eye there mm-hmm. because Estonia to India is not quite a hop, skip and a jump. So <laughs> not really. Well, welcome back and happy to have you back in London. Um, Nina, I'm super excited to have you today. You and I met at um, actually a, uh, I believe it was International Women's Day event uh, where you were speaking yes. and it was really inspiring to see you talking about um, your experience. And I said, I've got to get her on the show. She has a wealth of experience to share. Um, so thank you for your willingness to join us today. I know the listeners will be really thrilled to hear your story. Thank you so much for having me. And I am a loyal fan. So it is a bit surreal to join you today as well. Oh, well, that that is 
great to hear. Um, okay, so Nina, I want to jump right into your history. Um, and maybe we can start with a little bit about, you know, your focus on financial literacy and financial empowerment, you know, and where that started. Because as I said in the intro, this has been a passion of yours for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about why that was something that you had the clarity of intention to focus on? Maybe your personal experiences or the way you grew up? Uh, what are the influences that really drove drove you to focus in those areas? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question because I think that my landing up in fintech as you know a professional career choice was completely by accident um but i think i would have ended up ancillary to or within the financial literacy or financial inclusion space regardless for multiple reasons so uh to start uh my parents were immigrants to the us i grew up in california my dad is from india my mother is from taiwan um, so immigrant household, and um, I myself am now an immigrant in the UK. And one of the things that I realized as I grew older was that I had a very, very privileged upbringing. Um, you know, my parents came over as skilled engineers, but we also have a lot of the stereotypes that you find in immigrant households, like reusing ice cream tubs as Tupperware and bargain bin hunting and all that good stuff. But one of the things that I attribute so much of my privilege to is the fact that my mother opened a 529 fund, which for those that are not based in the US, a 529 is the tax code around this tax efficient uh, investment structure where you can use any of that money within that investment structure uh, for education purposes. And so because of that, I was able to go to the University of California, Davis. I was able to do, um, I was able to study abroad. I was able to do a master's degree, all covered by that. And I didn't have any student loan debt, which meant that when I graduated, you know, any mistakes I made with personal finance were my own. And I did make a few. I got myself into a lot of debt because, you know, we as Americans, uh, our approach to credit is a bit different than elsewhere. And so, you know, I racked up a lot of credit card debt and did not fully grasp, you know, that small print that says, yeah, sure, it's 0% APR for the first 12 months. But then after that, what happens? And so I treated it like it was free money. And it took me a long time to claw myself out of that debt. Only just a few years ago did I pay it off. And so I think my lived experience has made me very passionate about it. Um, you know, and I was just in India and I'm constantly reminded that there are people um, that are living in poverty. Um, you know, we have people living in poverty here in the UK, for example, or in the US, but, you know, there are also people living, living in poverty in India, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America. And so one of the, I think, one of the biggest tools to help them has been fintech products um, that have come out in the past, let's say 10 to 20 years. So very, very excited about the space. It's probably something I would have ended up in regardless of whether I had fallen into a job at MasterCard or not, um, but I'm glad I'm here. 
Yeah, I was curious. So your first your first uh, official gig in the finance or uh, fintech space was with MasterCard, and you started in payments there, um, and mm-hmm. then digital strategy. Um, what did you What did you think? You know, was the biggest opportunity for the ways that payments and fintech could impact the world around that time? Do you remember like going in and thinking, "Yeah, this is exciting. You know, I'm going to be able to use this in certain ways," right? Uh, I really think that that first job at MasterCard was the most formative uh, experience for me. And that is what made me fall in love with fintech. Um, I still talk about it so fondly and I speak about MasterCard so fondly because it was a wonderful environment to work in as well. Um, And at the time, Ajay Banga was the CEO of MasterCard and he would always go on and on about doing well uh, doing good by doing well, and kind of that triple bottom line. And that was always something that they talked about openly from the very top. The leadership was constantly talking about it. And so you really felt like, oh, wow, we're like part of something bigger here. But I think for me, I started in the UK office and I started around the time for the UK listeners when Monzo was Mondo and it was a prepaid card and Revolut was on the MasterCard start path. Um, which is MasterCard's incubator and Starling hadn't even launched yet. You know, Moniz was like building. It was just a really exciting time. And back then it was all of these cards were managed by the prepaid team, which is really funny because now they're called the EMI and FinTech team, um, EMI being e-money institution and FinTech, but they were they used to just be prepaid cards and it was like not sexy at all. It was just like, here's a gift card, <laughs> like, you know, that you top up and we're now saying that you can do it with an app. Okay, cool. But I think it was being at MasterCard at that time that just made me go, whoa. And I remember as well, I was, you know, a bit of a busybody and just kind of so eager to soak up knowledge. And I would take on these side projects you know, where my boss was like, yeah, if it doesn't, <laughs> if it doesn't keep you from doing your day job, I'm happy for you to go and chat to other people. So I was speaking to the guy who had basically introduced the um, contactless payment on, on the TFL and was doing it now in Doha and doing it, you know, in other cities around the world. And it's now available in New York City on the, on the MTA. And I was just like flabbergasted <laughs> that, you know, you can have so many touch points. And I think that was when I was like, whoa, fintech financial services touches every aspect of our lives. And we can apply technology to make people's lives better. So that was definitely like the moment where I just head over heels was like, can't go back now. It's funny when I was prepping for this with you, I went back and I read some of your early thought leadership work and one of your first pieces, <laughs> don't worry, I'm not going to read it. Oh my God. So embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's amazing. And, um, but this just gives you a, a data point to compare to, right? So one of your first blogs was talking about the funding, um, that had been done for FinTech that year, and it had just reached 2.3 billion. Right. And if we think mm. about, you know, fintech investment in 2021 alone, it was 37.3 billion just last year alone. Right. So um, yeah. massive gains during that time. And you've been yeah. there each step of the way uh, and you've progressed from MasterCard on, as I said, to several other companies. 
tell us a little bit of the hit list on, you know, how that journey has been and, you know, what drove you to take each next step. Yeah. So I then went on to Starling Bank, um, had the absolute privilege of working with a kick-ass team um, that was launching the current account there. And it is definitely one thing to kind of work in a fintech, but I was just so in awe of Anne Bowden and what she was building, Uh, not least because she is a woman (laughs) who was building a bank and running a bank. So that was just incredibly impressive to me. And she had a lot of women on her leadership team and in, you know, high positions throughout the business. And that was super impressive, but it was like baptism by fire. It, it was like, oh, and, and for those that remember that time, I think it was the summer of 2017 when they had officially launched the current account. And there was this whole drama where the processor went down and basically Monzo Starling and Revolut were all using the same processor at the time and they went down and it was like absolute like shit show (laughs) we were just all like running around like the slack is going off and we're just like what do we do this is nuts it was things like that where you learn more in like two hours than you do in two years right and so um getting to learn from the people that were building there was incredible. And the thing I often say now, you know, as I'm building my own business, people are like, Oh, you, do you want to be a bank? I'm like, honestly, I've seen Anne go through it. And I don't know that I have the nerves of steel that that woman does um, because she knew exactly what she was doing every step of the way. Um, I then had the opportunity to go over to bud um, and they were very, <laughs> they were kind of like, so there's this thing called open banking and you should, you should check it out. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's okay. Random. And I met uh, one of the guys, Jamie, who's now the, the CEO of a company called Fronted. He's now on his own entrepreneurial journey, but he was the one that kind of lured me in and said like, open banking is going to change everything. And you want to be a part of this. And so I took a leap of faith and I joined them. I was probably employee 12 at the time. And we were in a tiny uh, studio off of Brick Lane. It was incredible to watch it grow, to be part of the conversations that we were in, explaining APIs to people. You know, <laughs> It was hilarious as well because people would go to conferences. And this is probably the point where I realized that it takes years of saying something on stage for someone to digest it and like build it into their product roadmap. But we were basically going on a charm offensive, we called it, to basically get all of our third-party partners in our marketplace to build out public APIs. And it was just trying to explain to them, like, this is how great things could be. Imagine a world where, you know, your customer can view their balance. Not only that, that they can top up their balance. You know, it was just like, trying to explain to them why they should do it. And I have hilarious stories of people sending me their API docs, like in a PDF format, for example. So I've seen it all. Um, And then most recently was at Klarna. So had the incredible opportunity to join the team there and, and help kind of set up their US operations on the West Coast. And Klarna is like, (laughs) Klarna is Klarna. (laughs) I mean, even people who don't work in fintech know who who and what Klarna is. Um, 
it's nuts now because I read recently that they had like, well, they did lay off a bunch of people, but they were like at 6,500 employees. And it's strange to think that we weren't even 2000 at the time. And that felt like a lot. So it was a very exciting time to be there, dabbled in a bit of the more commercial space, but then moved back again towards product um, and looked at kind of new product lines and that kind of strategy and expansion uh, role. And it was just really exciting to see everything at a larger scale. Cause I kind of went from MasterCard, which is this like global multinational corporation, then down to Starling, which was, I was about employee hundred something. So fairly small business. Then to Bud, which was like, we were tiny. We were in one room all together and we grew quite quickly. But then to go to Klarna where it was like, oh, this is what high growth looks like. And that was really interesting. And I got to finally learn about different aspects of the company. And Klarna notoriously, uh, I don't know if they'll do it anymore, but they used to have a thing called uh, Smooth Week. And it started out early days at at, uh, Klarna where they would fly everyone in to one of the offices. And as that's grown, you can imagine, like, how do you get 2000 people to one place? But one year, it was 2019, so pre-pandemic, we all flew out to Berlin to kind of christen the new uh, tech hub that was opening in Berlin. And you kind of have like a mini exhibition hall. So every team would set up a stand and they would have like, it was almost like science fair, if you can imagine. And they've got like a board up and behind them and that everyone's kind of like mulling about. And I was like a kid in a candy shop. I was going around, I was like talking to the team that I'm like asking like, tell me about app penetration, like the app security team. And they were like, so excited that some, like this random person was asking them about like app penetration. And they're like, who are you? Um, I was speaking to like the open banking team and like account to account. And we were like nerding out about account to account payments and, you know, randomly spoke to the treasury team at Klarna. And they're like, who are you? Why do you care about this? But I was just so eager to like, just draw everything in. And I think, to be honest, that has been the driving force in most of my career is just raw curiosity. And like, there's nothing that is too boring for me to want to understand or learn. And uh, then, wow, over a year ago, left to start Bloom. So this is um, my career in in a nutshell. Uh, okay, so we're going to jump to Bloom in a second. But, you know, a phenomenal kind of rise. And I was speaking to someone the other day and they were trying to kind of back to the person who said to you, you know, I bet like you, you need to know what open banking is, um, you know, mm-hmm. and even though obviously a lot of time has passed since then, um, people are still trying to explain it, right? Money 2020 is happening. European money 2020 is happening yeah. this week. And a lot of the topics are use cases, presenting use cases that are possible with open banking and embedded fintech and embedded finance. Um, and I was speaking to someone the other day and they said, it's kind of like the first two years after the first iPhone was shown, like people just couldn't quite understand how yeah. many use cases were going to be um, you know, opened up or, or also like how web three is being looked at right now. Like it's difficult to imagine forward when we are going through such dramatic change. Right. But, um, I think it's a nice jumping off point to understand that you've seen the arc of that and you've been working very close to it. And it led you to 
leaving what arguably would say some of the biggest brands in fintech in the world and starting your own thing. So walk us through that journey. What, what, what was that like? And, and you know, what was the biggest inspiration for you? Yeah, I think for me, the, there was like many of us, I think during the early days of the pandemic, there was a lot of soul searching for a lot of people. I think as well, you know, I've mentioned my insatiable curiosity. And one of the things about me, and I I imagine for many people, is that I want to constantly be learning. I want to constantly be growing. And I hit a point where I just realized I had completely plateaued. Um, so, well, I guess there's two simultaneous factors going on. So internally, I realized I'm not really learning. I'm waking up and doing the same thing every day. And it's fine. Like I'm in a, I'm in a good place. I'm doing it well. I'm getting paid well for it. Fine. Um, not much to complain about, but I really have always been someone who's like, you know, as I was saying, in my early days at MasterCard, I was flitting around being like, hey, I know um, <laughs> nothing about transport, but I really want to know about this product that you're building to, you know, allow people to pay with cards in Doha when they get on public transport, you know? And so I got to a point where I was that, that person wandering around saying, Hey, like, this seems like a really cool project that you're working on. And I'd love to lend a hand, be a resource to you if I can. I was actually met with a bit of, uh, Oh, actually we're fine right now, or we don't and I, and I get it, you know, sometimes a team just doesn't have the capacity to onboard someone to help, even if they want the help, right? And so I was kind of going around knocking on doors and saying like, hey, like, I want to help you. I want to learn from you. I want to grow my skill set. And just feeling really stuck, just felt so stuck. And, and every day felt like Groundhog's Day, uh, you know, like... I'm sure for many of us as well, given the context, the backdrop is the pandemic as well, right? So we're all kind of waking up, going to our desks or our kitchen counters and doing the same thing over and over and over. But then in the background, I was just like, I am not learning anything here. And I I had gone and enrolled um, for the Alliance Francaise, like they do uh, French classes. So I was doing four hours of French class, like on Saturdays. And I was doing like, product classes at night. And I was just trying to like stretch my mind as much as I could, but I just wasn't feeling like I was growing and I wasn't being fed the nutrients that I needed. Right. And it just really felt what I imagine, you know, a caged lion feels like a little bit. I, I could never really empathize with that, but, you know, just feeling like, come on, let me run, like put me in coach. I'm mixing so many metaphors here, but just let me out there. And then simultaneously, I had started doing a bit of research um, that would ultimately lead to Bloom, but it was this simultaneous uh, realization that a lot of the products that I was building were basically copies of each other, or the people whom I was building for were copies of each other. And that's fine, right? So oftentimes I talk about the fact that like, a lot of fintech is focused on people who are like us, uh, who work in tech, who have disposable income. 
But as I said at the beginning, one of the things that made me fall in love with fintech was this idea that we could actually better people's lives, not just our own, but others, no matter where they are in the world. And so I looked around and kind of felt like, is this what you want to be doing right now? Um, and, you know, I've hopefully have a long time to build a legacy, but it just didn't feel like it was perfectly aligned with my values. And I know that a lot of people felt that way as well, because I would speak to my girlfriends about it. And some people would be like, you know what, you have a job and there's a pandemic going on and just hold on to that. And that's a very realistical, realistical, <laughs> realistic and pragmatic thing to hold on to, of course. But the more I studied, um, the more I actually got to do the bits that I love doing most, which is um, speaking to customers. So at, at Klarna, for example, I was always the first to volunteer to do product research, user research. <laughs> I was like, yep, I'm in there straight in. Um, and so it started out with me um, back in the days when we were queuing to get into the grocery stores, just having a chat with the security guy, you know, and asking him, like, tell me about financial services and how how you manage your money. And then it was like, talking to a bus driver who's having a cigarette break. And then it was talking to a woman who's cleaning at the mall, something like that. And it, it started snowballing. And then I went on to like Facebook groups and was trying to just randomly chat to people like, Hey, I'd love to chat to you about how you manage your money. Um, and I tried to, you know, never a leading question, but always tried to keep it very broad, very open and conversational, but start to gain all of these insights and there was just a certain point when I remember I was speaking to, you know, my friend about it and he was just like, there's something here. You've, you've got to do it. And so I, uh, wow, almost a year ago now, then uh, handed in my notice and off I went to start Bloom. And it's one of those things where you can't see, but in front of me, like I, I'm a post-it gal. So, I mean, what kind of product person isn't, but I have post-its everywhere. And then in like the most horrifying electric colors as well, not just like the standard post-its, but like, I got one that was like Miami themed. And then one that was like Tuscan sun themed. And they have all these like ridiculous, like variations of colors. My wall, I've since moved, but my wall looked like like if someone walked in, they'd be like, oh, what is she planning here? This is not, there's something wrong here. And it was very like, you know, not red string, but definitely like arrows and all of that nonsense. And there was like uh, printouts of various, you know, UI that I really liked or things that I found product features from other uh, businesses or products that I thought were really great. And they were just, you know, like posts all over it, annotations everywhere. And it was just like, okay, we're doing it. We're going to do it. And that was when I left and started my journey as a founder, but a founder with a product heart, I would say. <laughs> this is the best, the best in my opinion. <laughs> I'm laughing because there was two points in your, in your story there where you were like, it's fine. But, but you know what, like whenever you have to say it's fine, it's never really fine. It's, it's never not, fine. It, it's yeah. never fine. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, I want to know, like, for those who are not familiar with Blue Money, and you'll get, um, I think, a lot of people who will come check it out uh, afterwards, but, like, what is success? You will look back 
you say you have a long time to build a legacy, but you'll look back and you'll say, I was successful if, um, what is the answer to that? I will have been successful if the products that we build accelerate families on their generational wealth journey. Um, this is something that, you know, I think about my parents and, and it's very fitting actually that we're having this conversation now. Um, Tiama knows I was just home in India because my grandmother passed away and she was actually my last living grandparent. And, you know, not to bring the conversation down or anything, but I had this, uh, realization because, um, my grandmother was very Hindu and they do like 14 days of uh, prayer and kind of like worship to help the spirit move on. And during this time, I realized I was not only mourning her passing, but also mourning uh, the closing of a generation. And, you know, we all, I don't, I don't want to speak for everyone. It's a bit of a generalization, but I had a very close relationship with my grandparents. I think many people do, but my grandparents, so my grandmother on uh, my dad's side that just passed was a homemaker. She raised five children. Her husband, my grandfather was a bus conductor, right? And on my mom's side, they uh, ran a printing shop. And so, uh, you know, fairly humble roots, um, my two parents both were given great educations. And in my dad's case in particular, my grandfather always said to him and that my dad has since always said to us, we will always find a way to pay for school. We'll always find a way to pay for books. And so put my dad through school and then my dad and then my mother from Taiwan, you know, they both pursued uh, degrees. They then studied computer science. They ended up coming to the Silicon Valley working, you know, as engineers during the dot-com boom. And they've now handed off and given me and my brother this amazing opportunity where we don't have student loan debt. We, you know, have a pot of money or enough security on my end to pursue building a, co a company of my own. Um, you know, they have a house that one day will be passed down to one of us or both of us. And so when I think about generational wealth, you know, it can often take multiple generations. We got very lucky that it, it happened in the space of just two generations where we are now, but sometimes it takes longer than that. And what we want to do is be the catalyst to speed up the generational wealth transfer. And so, you know, especially as more and more people seek new opportunities, come to the Western world, to build new lives. We want to be there along the way to be that catalyst and say, cool, let's let's bring you in. Let's introduce you to how the financial system works here. And we're gonna give you all the tools and all the education that you need to take advantage of it. And then we're gonna build products that you don't have to crowbar yourself to fit into, but that actually fit your lifestyle. And that I think is something I keep coming back to when we talk about financial inclusion, because it's not a particularly sexy topic, I know. Um, but someone once asked me like, what's your definition of financial inclusion? And I said, my idea of financial inclusion is a world where we don't have to contour ourselves to fit the existing system and rather the products and services fit us. And I think we are 
getting closer and closer to it with embedded finance, with this idea that we can create tailored products for specific people where you have challenger banks that are being built for LGBT plus communities, for gamers, for digital nomads or whatever it may be, we're getting closer. And that is what really gets me excited every day. I think though, one of the things you and I have talked about is it's not enough to say that, you know, embedded finance or open banking is going to help change that. We have to be intentional about building products mm-hmm. that are designed with understanding who's underserved, right? And thinking about, you know, how can we serve them or mm-hmm. at least be mindful of it, right? Um, so talk to us a little bit about, I mean, by nature, your your USP at Bloom is looking at serving a segment of the population that's not normally targeted. So you're doing Absolutely. that. But talk, talk to us about how you've made conscious decisions um, mm-hmm. from a product-led perspective to kind of account for the underbanked and underserved uh, segments of the population. Yeah, I think this is one of the things where, I mean, I could speak about this for days, days and days and days. There are so many things that we kind of take as um, hygiene, I suppose, when we talk about personal finance management, for example. And I think perhaps you and I agree. I know we agree that at the end of the day, it's all about serving the wants and the needs of our customers. And the best way to do that, go figure, is to speak to them, of course. (laughs) But um, a great example of this, So Experian, uh, the credit rating agency, they launched a product called Experian Boost. Um, It's based on open banking. And this is a product that they said, basically give us access to your account. So through open banking, uh, through an account uh, information service provider, they will aggregate all of your transactional data and then they'll go through and start rifling through to find positive indicators to help you build your credit score, right? Now, in theory, love the idea of this, but one of the things that I had to point out to a few people who work at Experian was, what are the factors that you are looking at? And so in the UK, some of the factors they're looking for are uh, subscriptions. So for example, Netflix, Spotify, Amazon, Prime, that sort of thing. Um, then they're looking for things like um, your kind of like savings accounts, if you have any that you can connect or your investment accounts. They're also looking for things like your council tax that you pay each month um, or a direct debit that's going out for your utilities. And I had to point out to them what happens, for example, as many of us do, and we know that Netflix is trying to crack down on this, if you have one pay one person paying for Netflix, but tons of people using the login, or what happens if they don't even use it, right? What if they're not even using Netflix or not using Spotify because, you know, maybe someone who is working multiple jobs doesn't have time to sit down and watch Netflix, so they don't even have a subscription to Netflix, right? Um, what happens if you're using council tax as one of your indicators? What happens if someone lives in council's housing and doesn't pay council tax? So I had to point these things out to them and also recently had to point out, we were running a workshop for um, a group of women um, with that kind of live in the Tower Hamlets Council, which is um, 
notoriously the borough in London that has the most income inequality because you have both Canary Wharf and then like the surrounding East End area around it. And we were running a workshop and someone kind of commented saying like, oh, well, it should be fairly easy. Like you've done workshops for your friend, your girlfriends and whatever in the past. I said, well, actually, no, it's not because um, one of the things that I had to educate myself on was how benefits work. Uh, And so some people, you know, a lot of times we talk about like, yeah, your rent should be like X percent of your of your uh, total pay. Um, We talk about the 50, 30, 20 rule in personal finance management. But well, what happens if, you know, you're again living in council housing and you're not necessarily paying rent or when we talk about income, well, what happens if your income is coming from a bunch of benefits that are lumped together, right? And so there's there's a basic understanding of your customer and how these customers are different that is really necessary that I don't think we talk about enough. And we kind of just assume that the majority of the people are just like living on a salaried, you know, weight or salary all the time. But that doesn't even include like, you know, we haven't touched like wage workers and lots of earned wage access products that are popping up and that sort of thing as well. So I think speaking to a lot of people, understanding their needs. Another thing that we talk about a lot is like Sharia compliance. So um, there's been a huge like Cambrian explosion, I would say even of Islamic finance fintech. And I'm delighted to see that. But a lot of times people are like, oh, why is this important? And it's like, well, you know, there are millions uh, of Muslims living in this country. There's many more living around the world, of course, fastest growing religion. uh, And yet they don't have financial products that are in line with their faith. So then when we, you know, this past Ramadan, they were saying that um, 50% of Muslim households in the UK are living at or below the poverty line. Well, you know, I can't say that that's because there aren't products for them, but perhaps if we had more products that are built with them in mind and their religious or their faith-based needs, like maybe we could help make a dent in that. So there's so many different aspects that we have to take into consideration here. Even things that are as subtle as like, perhaps a woman is not earning money, but at the same time, she manages the household's finances, little things like that, right? where unless you speak to the end customer, you're just never going to know. And it's all going to be a theory until you launch and then realize, uh uh-oh, we forgot about a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the clear line that comes from what you speak about is, you know, ideally what you're doing is you're ensuring the work that you're doing represents those diverse perspectives. But at the kind of a forcing function for that is taking responsibility for the impact on those who aren't represented. And if you think through that and think, okay, so who's not going to be represented here um, and kind of challenge your assumptions, as you say, right, you may be making assumptions about how someone lives their life and is going to interact with your product that are completely wrong. And the truth is like, people interact with the world in a multitude of different ways. Uh, So, you know, your product team, um, if not your business and your founder, but ideally at least your product team is definitely saying, okay, do we have the diverse perspectives on the team? And are we thinking through who is served and is not served by our product today? And are we at least taking, you know, accountability for the impact of that? Ideally you design your roadmap maybe to, to solve yes. for that. But, 
but not everybody has, uh, you know, to be completely candid, not everybody's going to have the freedom within an organization to do that. But at least if you're mindful about it, you can explore the risks of not doing so and the benefits of doing so. Right. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's be the voice in the room that says, what about X or we're forgetting that. I, I, there were many times in product meetings in previous roles where the product didn't take the direction that I would have liked it to. It could have been changed slightly differently, but at the very least, I know that I raised it and it was at least there was a conversation that was had about it. And, you know, I still kick myself sometimes. Maybe I should have pushed a bit harder, maybe this and that, but at least I was in that room. And now everyone that was in that room, the next time will probably think, hey, maybe we should think about this as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, with that, Nina, we are wrapping up uh, this fantastic interview, which means we're getting to my favorite part of the show. And I get to ask you my favorite question. Um, so if there was a world dedicated, a, excuse me, if there was a museum dedicated to the world's most important products, and remember, it's the most important, it doesn't have to be the most successful. Um, what product do you think should be in the museum and why? So do I get one or do I get how many do I get? You can get up to three. You can get up to three. Okay. I'll go with two. Um, the first is the rice cooker. The rice cooker. So, um, and by this, I mean the electric rice cooker. So it was made for commercial use by Toshiba in 1955. Um, and since then it has you know, it's been, it's in most, uh, at least, um, kind of like middle-class households across Asia, definitely in my household. Um, one, it is just the simplicity of the engineering is amazing, right? So you've got like just the latent heat of water and, you know, water nearing a hundred degrees Celsius, but then the second concept of like the Curie temperature and magnets and, it's just such a simple mechanism. It was the simplest way forward. And that was like what worked and has continued to work for so long. Um, the other thing is that it was, it's convenient. Like it, it genuinely solves a job to be done. <laughs> um, it's time-saving, it's convenient. It does, it, the, does what you're trying to do well, like love it. Full points, no notes. Um, and I also was chuckling because I randomly looked it up because I was just curious, like how many rice cookers are there out in the world right now? Um, and I couldn't find a, a solid number. But according to research and markets, the global electric rice cooker market was valued at $3.2 billion in 2018 and is anticipated to reach $5.5 billion by 2026, which I thought was brilliant, uh, considering so much of the world eats rice or various pulses. That's brilliant and how old and how old it is that's healthy growth this long after i know i know you gotta love that um and then the second is a bit nerdier on my side and that is the printing press um so that's more of a, a philosophical one for me but um the printing press originally made in china that you know was used for so many things but i think we in the western world definitely think about it in like the what 1400s was it uh 1450 something um when johannes gutenberg created the gutenberg press and then from that the gutenberg bible and the reason that i think it's brilliant is again a fairly simplistic device 
um, whose impact has been, well, one, it's scalable, <laughs> but everything off the back of it has been able to change so much in the lasting impact of the world. So I think about John Calvin and Martin Luther and the break from the Catholic Church and this idea that have a Bible in your home and and God is wherever you want to be. I'm not a particularly religious person, but you know that is a very beautiful thing in my mind. Um, everything to if anyone's been watching watching Bridgerton, you know, pamphlets um, from Lady Bridgerton to, you know, the women suffragettes who were fighting for women's suffrage, um, the pamphlets that have that were used to spread the word about the American Revolution. There's just so much that we can chalk up to it. Um, so great products, uh, scalable, and uh, the content from it also scalable. So I would put those two in the museum of product. <laughs> this is my favorite question because we get to hear less about the product, although I always learn something interesting, but more about the person on the show and what <laughs> they think about and what they what they find valuable. So, Nina, that was a beautiful peek into your mind. Um, I'm so I'm, glad. <laughs> yes, I'm very excited to watch uh, Bloom continue to bloom. And uh, for anyone who's interested in checking it out, where where are they able to get a hold of you and learn more? Check us out at bloommoney.co. That's C-O, uh, because we could not afford the full domain. <laughs> <laughs> Life of an early stage founder, um, but also drop me an out on LinkedIn if um, any of this resonates with you. We're in that uh, early stage where I run product um, and I wear lots of hats. But you know, one day I hope to be uh, building out our product team and would be very, very lucky to work with many of the people who are part of your community. Well, who knows? Maybe the next time we have you on, it'll be you and your your new CPO. And with that. And with that, we'll get to hear all new bunches of stories on what's happened since. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Tiama. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.